I'd like to play you a song. apologize for the little Christmas carol in the middle of summer, but I couldn't resist. The Vince Guaraldi trio version of this song from the Charlie Brown Christmas album is probably my favorite Christmas song of all time. It just never fails to relax me and put me exactly into the holiday spirit. On the album, however, it's not called O Christmas Tree. It goes by its original name, O Tannenbaum. As a kid, I had no idea what that meant. It was completely foreign to me. I'm sure you know this, but that is the original name of the song, spawning from its origins as a German Christmas carol. The subject is the same, however. O Tannenbaum literally means O Fir Tree. With holiday lyrics written in 1824 by a composer named Ernst Anschutz, the melody itself actually dates back to the 16th century. A different set of lyrics had been applied to the tune before, making it a love song, which it remained up until World War I. But then, a little later around the turn of the century, O Christmas Tree became the popularized version of this very simple tune. And it is very simple. It's basically a pair of repeated stanzas, one variation stanza, and then that first stanza closes it out. It's simple and sweet, and it has enough movement in it that it feels fresh when that third stanza comes around. It's no wonder that, in the years since it became popularized, the tune to O Tannenbaum has taken up many, many variations. The despot seal is on thy shore, Marilyn, my Marilyn, his touch is at thy temple door, Marilyn, my Marilyn. I'm Nick DeLisandro, and this is Wait Five Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week is our season four premiere, and we're talking about our state song, both past and present, the ways we formed our identity and the struggles therein. This episode is going to discuss some of the painful history of racism in this country, specifically the usage of blackface. I just wanted to give you a warning up front. For life and death, for woe and weal, I fearless chivalry reveal, and gird thy beauteous limbs with steel. Maryland, my Maryland. Now, that is not... O Tannenbaum. It's the same tune, but it's not the same song. I know, it's the same melody, the same backing, but technically this is a different song, dedicated to honoring the seventh state in the Union, Maryland. It's called Maryland, My Maryland. This is, of course, not a Maryland podcast, so I reached out to Alex Lothstein, a historian at the Maryland Historical Society, to provide some background on how this song came to popularity. My name is Alex Lostein. I'm the museum learning manager at the Maryland Historical Society. So I do a lot of uh, in-gallery interpretation and also work with our adult groups and uh, school groups that come in. When the Civil War broke out and lines were drawn in the sand, many northern cities were grappling with where to draw their allegiances. Maryland was one such state. Nearly half of their population was freed, formerly enslaved persons. While many of the state's white politicians were Confederate sympathizers or just downright pro-slavery advocates, Lincoln considered Maryland a very risky state to lose. It borders Washington, D.C., after all. 
Maryland is on the northern part of Washington, D.C. Virginia is on the southern part of Washington, D.C. When the Confederates opened fire on Fort Sumter, um, and you have a lot of uh, states seceding, uh, Virginia secedes, uh, South Carolina secedes, a bunch of southern states secede. Lincoln calls for 75,000 troops to come to defend Washington, D.C. And the way the train system worked at that time, the, uh, most of the troops were coming from New England, and so they have to come from Baltimore. One week after the Civil War officially began in April of 1861, Union soldiers were arriving through that train station. They were met by anti-Union protesters. At that time when they came through Baltimore, troops would get off at President Street Station. Some of these troops were coming down in, in April, uh, on April 19th of 1861. These were the six Massachusetts troops and they arrived at Preston Street Station, but then as as, as the horses are making their way down Pratt Street, a lot of pro-Confederate sympathizers actually start blocking the tracks. They start uh, throwing bricks uh, on the tracks, putting logs, wood, kind of blocking the, the horses from moving. So what happens is the train cars have to go back to the station, um, and the 6th Massachusetts begin to march down Pratt Street. And as they're marching, you have a lot of uh, you have a big crowd start to form around them, and a lot of these are pro-Confederate sympathizers um, who are, you know, upset that uh, troops are coming through Baltimore. The Sixth Massachusetts weren't the first to come through Baltimore, and as they're coming down, uh, things are being thrown at them. So basically, paving stones. People are picking up stones off the street, throwing them at them. Um, they're shouting slurs at them, and then a shot is fired. Um, no one quite knows where the shot is, but. People tend to think it came from the crowd because a lot of people in the crowd were armed um, with with weapons. Um, and the officers who aren't really trained, they haven't really been in combat before, uh, tell their soldiers to open fire. Um, so the 6th Massachusetts opens fires into the crowd. And so there's actually this, this fighting happening between the crowd and, and the soldiers. And... Um, it only stopped when Marshall Kane, who was a uh, Confederate sympathizer and the chief of police, he actually steps in between two groups, and he and his police officers lead the 6th Massachusetts down to Camden Station to take them to D.C. There were uh, eight riders uh, killed, um, one bystander was killed, and three soldiers were killed, but there were countless who were wounded. Eight days after that, President Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus starting with Maryland, meaning prisoners could be taken in and not see a judge. A month later, several members of the Maryland political sphere that stated their Confederate ties were taken from their homes and their beds and thrown into jail at Fort McHenry, where many were kept without trial for the entirety of the war. One reason why Lincoln wanted Maryland was because he needed Maryland to stay in the Union, because if it didn't, then Washington would be surrounded. They allow this innocent so that Maryland will stay in the Union so that Union troops can pass back and forth um, and, and that Washington is basically safe. Later in the war, when you get to some southern states, you have a lot of martial law that's put into place, but nothing to the extent of what happens in Maryland. Lincoln considered Maryland an essential military holding, and to lose it to the Confederacy would be a heavy, near-catastrophic blow. Alexander tells me that the cannons on the hill faced inward toward Baltimore rather than out. They weren't defending the city. They were occupying it. A Maryland-born poet named James Ryder Randall was living in Louisiana as everything in his home state turned upside down. 
With Union troops occupying Baltimore, the anti-abolition poet took up his pen and wrote a poem called Maryland, My Maryland. And so he's, he's down in Louisiana and he hears about what's going on uh, in Baltimore. Um, the, the, we call it the Pratt Street Riot, but basically the, the Baltimore riots of, of 1861. And he, he writes this poem. Basically, he, he kind of writes down what he's feeling at that time. Um, and he writes it for a couple of reasons, but he's kind of putting a call out to Maryland to join with Virginia and secede. At some point, the poem was slightly reworked and set to an old Germanic folk song and soon became a known standard of pro-Confederate regional praise. It's very popular, and, and Robert E. Lee actually has his men sing the song as they're marching through Frederick, Maryland in 1862. Um, Frederick was a pro-Union part of the state. It becomes, in a sense, a battle cry for, for what's happening in Maryland. They use this as a way to show that the Union is, that Lincoln is overstepping his boundaries. At one point, Alex tells me, a Union version was actually written as a parody of the Confederate song. In 1939, the pro-Confederate Maryland My Maryland was permanently bound to the legacy of the state of Maryland as it was officially named the State Song. In the years that followed, critics noted that a pro-slavery song should not be the sentiment to reflect the state. Lyrics were changed and rearranged. A verse about Revolutionary War veterans came into play. A poem with that same title got added, but the chunk of pro-Confederate lyrics remain. Some lines really stand out. Noticeably, one line includes the Latin phrase that John Wilkes Booth shouted after he assassinated President Lincoln. It reads, quote, she meets her sisters on the plain, sic semper, tis the proud refrain. John Wilkes Booth said, sic semper tyrannis, meaning thus always to tyrants. Additionally, the final set of lyrics speaking to the enduring nature of the state goes as follows, quote, she is not dead, nor deaf, nor dumb, huzzah, she spurns the northern scum, end quote. It's a perfect representation of Maryland's divided conscience as the world found itself changing. At the same time as Maryland was making this their state song, in a strange case of parallel thinking, Florida was also changing their state song. They were changing it to its current song, Old Folks at Home. You may know it by its more common name, Way Down Upon the Suwannee River. Before that, it was a tune called Florida, My Florida. And if the title sounds familiar, wait until you hear the melody. Now, that is not O Tannenbaum, nor is it Maryland to my Maryland. It is a song written by a man named Reverend Chastain V. Waugh, a Baptist minister who moved to Gainesville, Florida. He was not exactly an effective leader, and he soon lost a ton of money for the Baptist church. By 1893, he had taken up teaching and soon became an instructor at a college in Lake City. The Reverend took up teaching linguistics at this school. That small college, then called the Florida Agricultural and Mechanical College, became the University of Florida in 1906. That same year, the Reverend wrote the lyrics to a song called Florida, My Florida. 
unlike the Maryland State song, the lyrics are not nearly as political. There is a brief line that hints at some political stance, which reads, quote, the oppressor's rod can't rest on thee, end quote. Other than that, the song leans on one idea. Florida is beautiful and amazing, and everybody likes it here. It was adopted in 1913 by Governor Park Monroe Trammell as our official state song and was soon taught to children to sing in schoolhouses along with our national anthem. Now, whether or not this song was a direct copy of the Maryland state song is unclear. The copied title and melody is really our only clue. In fact, Maryland ratified Maryland My Maryland as their state song in 1939. By that time, Florida My Florida had already been replaced. A new song had made its way into the heart of Florida's politicians, and its legacy is far more brutal. That song is called Old Folks at Home, but most people simply know it by its subject line, Swanee River. It is a minstrel folk song written in 1851 for usage in performance by a very famous minstrel troupe called Christie's Minstrels. The song was written by a man named Stephen Foster. He was a white man born in 1826 in a part of Pennsylvania that is now part of Greater Pittsburgh. In adulthood, Foster became a songwriter. He cited many influences from church songs to what he called folk songs. By the 1840s, he was writing such popular songs as O oh Susanna. By the 1850s, he was writing music for Edwin P. Christie of Christie's Minstrels. Christie was a showman who owned and operated a troupe of performers that worked exclusively in the style of minstrel shows. Minstrel shows were a very popular form of theater where white performers would cake on blackface makeup and sing, dance, and participate in skits, often in some form of a characterized accent. Not only were they extremely popular, but they were very common, and Christie's minstrel shows were arguably the most well-known, especially when the idea of groups of minstrel performers became the trend. No longer were there individual performers, people were working in groups, and Christie's minstrels capitalized on that form. The group form started in the early 1840s, and that's also when Christie's troupe formed in 1842. And they uh, toured at first and then had a very long run in New York. That is Tracy C. Davis. She's a professor of performing arts, theater, and English at Northwestern University. She has done research on the minstrel shows of this era, specifically the work of Christie's Minstrels. Christie's Minstrels arose in 1842 as part of a efflorescence of interest in blackface minstrelsy. It had been a solo performance form from the mid-1830s. And in 1842, there were several troops that formed. All of these were white men, predominantly from the American Northeast. And they're called blackface minstrels because they performed in blackface. And minstrels, because minstrelsy was a catch-all term for anything considered to be an ethnic ethnic or ethnically inflected musical form. And in this case, the proposition was that these were genuine tunes 
taken from the slave culture of the South. Well, the claim was, in many cases, that they were observed uh, at, at dock sides, observed uh, as field songs, observed in so-called plantation revelries. Whether or not that was true is much under debate. Whether or not it was ever true, as opposed to sometimes true, is much under debate. But it was a marketing claim. And these sorts of songs and shows were specifically written to match the tone and aesthetic that the minstrel shows were already perpetuating. So they were doing sketches that were parodies of other popular performance forms, and then a series in any given evening's or afternoon's performance, a series of songs. And some of these songs were um, were this kind of pseudo-ethnographic African-American performance, and I stress pseudo there very strongly. So some of this was in dialect, some of this was topical, um, some of this had explicitly Southern content, but a good deal of it was really pretty generic. Now, Davis stresses something very important to me here. These sorts of songs and shows had fully entered pop culture. Most of the tunes eventually became ubiquitous around the country, like Oh Susanna and Camptown Races, both of which were written by Stephen Foster to be performed in these types of shows. Foster wrote many songs of the Christie's Minstrel's repertoire, but more generally, the blackface repertoire of songs were so popular amongst the populace that they brought them into the home as well. For context, Tracy C. Davis provides a very modern reference. Stephen Foster and more broadly the blackface repertoire, it's like the Beatles songbook of the mid-19th century. In terms of popularity, of course. I really can't overstress how often these songs are reprinted and how widely they circulate. So they're being performed at home and presumably they're being performed with some degree of imitation of what was heard in the theater. The Christie's performers were exemplary musicians. The musical skill is aspirational in these parlor performances. So there's probably an attempt to reproduce them as best people could. And even though Christie's minstrels eventually broke apart into smaller troops and the 19th century moved onward, the style of blackface and its music never fully went away. Two things happen after the Civil War. One is that African-American performers start to form blackface troops and they're touring and they're rivaling the white performing troops. And sometimes women start to perform uh, in the blackface repertoire at the same time, particularly in the skits. But it remains primarily a musical format. And then the other thing that happens is that the blackface format, which by this time is very uh, well established, is picked up by amateurs and it becomes a fundraising proposition in everywhere from colleges to men's service clubs, boy scouts, everybody's doing blackface minstrelsy for fundraising well into the mid-20th century. The Civil War begins and ends 
and Reconstruction fundamentally changes the nature of our country, but blackface performances never fully goes away. The music enters the public consciousness forever. This song, by the way, Old Folks at Home, is a song with many problems within it. First of all, the river used in the song is not spelled the way the lyrics are written. The Sewanee River itself, which runs through the middle of Florida, is spelled S-U-W-A-N-E-E. The song removes that U to make it a two-syllable word, not Sewanee, Swanee. Second, the story goes that Foster himself was trying several rivers from several states to fill in for the river in the song's lyrics. It was once the Yazoo in Mississippi, then the Petey in South Carolina, until he finally settled on the Swanee. The location of the river is completely irrelevant to the song's original creation. Additionally, Stephen Foster never visited Florida. His apparent poetic waxing on the nature of the state is moot. He was writing about a mythical South, not our actual state. Lastly, and most importantly, are the several lyrical choices in the original version that hold to racist ideals of the 19th century. The song is written in a faux southern dialect. It includes nostalgia for the era of plantations, and even includes a literal racial slur. Look it up. They are built into the original bones of this song, and in 1935, it was adopted as Florida's state song. This is due in part to a Florida state representative from Miami named Simon Pierre Robineau. Born in France, Robineau came to Florida and spent much of his political career apparently pandering to those who held on to Confederate nostalgia into the early years of the 20th century. And Confederate nostalgia was very popular in this area. Many southern states, including our own, added the cross of the Confederate battle flag into their official state flag. Mississippi is the strongest example of this, but the red cross in Florida's flag is exactly the same as the cross in the Confederate battle flag. Now, as Tracy C. Davis said, the minstrel repertoire also never went away. It remained a staple in the American culture and as nostalgia for a time before the Civil War ramped up among the white populace in the South, songs from that era naturally came along. Robineau proposed that Florida abandon its previous state song, Florida My Florida, and solidify Florida as a true member of this fictional South. Old Folks at Home, as it mentions a river that partially runs through Florida, felt like the proper choice for Robineau to replace the former song. As Florida historian T.D. Allman says in his book Finding Florida, quote, In order to make Swanee Florida's state song, its legislators threw out an anthem composed by an actual Floridian that described Florida as it actually was. End quote. Then, in 1978, things started to change. When the new Capitol building was dedicated in Tallahassee that year, the song was performed with a slight revision. The slur was replaced with the word brothers. The trend took over and soon many references to slavery and plantations were replaced or edited. The song continued to be sung, but as the implications of the song became clearer to those who had previously ignored it, the edits built up. More conflict grew in Tallahassee. Every few years, a new legislator would broach the issue, get into a political brawl with their fellow lawmakers, and then the issue would drop and the song would hold its position. The song had been sung at gubernatorial inaugurations for seven decades, until 2007. 
the inauguration of the new governor, Charlie Crist, removed old folks at home from the ceremony, replacing it instead with a song called The Florida Song. Here is a little of it performed by its writer, Charles Atkins. Then, Governor Charlie Crist made replacing the state song one of his goals as governor. He asked Tony Hill, a member of the Florida Senate and leader of the Black Caucus in Florida, to find a new state song to replace Swanee. After a contest among songwriters across the state, a new song was given to the legislature as a potential replacement. It's called Florida, where the sawgrass meets the sky. It was written by Jan Hilton. Here's a little bit of it. Florida, where the sawgrass meets the sky. Florida, where our hearts will never lie. But when the song was presented to the state legislature, they did not wish to remove Swanee River. Instead, they made a new distinction for where the sawgrass meets the sky. It was now Florida's state anthem. As a compromise, the lyrics to Swanee River were amended officially, replacing the slur with the phrase dear ones and replacing the line that referenced a plantation, making it instead, quote, still longing for my childhood station, end quote. Charlie Crist wanted to replace the song entirely, but settled for the compromise. To this day, 12 years later, Florida still has two state songs, and one of them is Swanee River. Thou wilt not cower in the dust, Maryland, my Maryland. Thy beaming sword shall never rust, Maryland, my Maryland. Remember. Alex Lothstein from the Maryland Historical Society shares that there's been many pushes to replace their state song over the years as well. But a big push happened in 2015 after the. Um, the, the uh, murder of, of nine uh, uh, parishioners at the Emanuel African Methodist uh, Episcopal Church in South Carolina. Right. Um, and, you know, you also had a big debate about statues and Confederate memorials um, in, in the United States. And so in 2015, Maryland State Archives formed an advisory council uh, to, to review the song. It had historians, it had music historians, it had, you know, state representatives. Um, and so that's when the big push kind of came. There was a brief moment where it was to be given the distinction as Maryland's state historical song, but the Maryland House and their governor, Larry Hogan, opposed the motion. There was yet another push this year to have it removed, but the onset of the coronavirus pandemic pushed it out of the legislature's priority. The state is still divided on the issue of whether or not to keep it. Florida, however, has not loudly had such a conversation in many years, even with the conversation about the removal of Confederate images spreading across the state. For many, the lyric changes to remove the racist language was not enough. The entire repertoire of songs by Foster and his ilk carry a legacy forward from an era filled with our greatest American shame. And that legacy is embedded in the DNA of the song, no matter how much it has been debated. And Tracy C. Davis shares that it has been debated for decades, although not necessarily in the mainstream. In the early 60s, 
there was no critique. Now, at the same time, in African-American culture, there is a vigorous critique and a very vigorous understanding from at least the early 20th century, maybe before, but we can document it in the early 20th century, a vigorous understanding of how this repertoire carries racism forward, how it is inherently racist, how the act of putting on blackface makeup is racist, how the affectations and the banjo playing and then et cetera, et cetera, are a nostalgia for an, a version of the old South that some actively longed to recreate. The conversation in Florida, in Maryland, and in America has always and will always be about moving forward or moving back. The state song may feel small, and in the face of everything going on, it certainly is, but it is the loudest and should be the proudest declaration of who we are as a state. White supremacy is unfortunately rooted in so much of our country and its history. In the South, we face an even larger specter of its impact on our lives. Our cities are divided still along segregated lines. The names on our buildings still endorse figures who built their lives on the oppression and destruction of all people of color, but especially black citizens. Black Americans still suffer from the systems put in place by white supremacist leaders from decades past and present. If America and the American South and Florida are to survive, we have to pull white supremacy out by the roots in all the ways it is present in our lives. How can we as Floridians expect to succeed in that when our flag has the cross of the Confederate battle flag and our song is an amended version of a racist caricature that once included a slur? Florida's character is marred in that racism. If we are to love this place as much as we want to, those things must be removed. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to this show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. I would recommend listening to last autumn's episode about our state flag, where we discuss how the red saltire on our flag came to be. You'll find some similarities between that story and this one. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. We have the entirety of season four ahead of us, and I would love for as many people as possible to come onto this show during this season. It helps the show become more visible when you leave a review, and it means the world to me to know what you like about this show and why you keep coming back. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. You can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal Twitter account at WFMNick. 
I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Tracy C. Davis from Northwestern University and Alex Lothstein from the Maryland Historical Society. I've provided links below where you could check out more of their work. They were such a delight to speak to. I am so grateful for all they shared. Below, I've also attached a link to an extensive historical document about all the variations on Florida's state song. I would highly recommend you give it a read. Thanks to Lauren Nix for artwork used on the social media channels. You can find more of her art at lauren.nix.photo. All the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below. Next week, the humble gopher tortoise, the most important animal in Florida. I'll see you next Monday with that brand new episode. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Wear a mask when you go out in public, please. And drink more water. Have a good week. I'm very excited for season four. <laughs>